Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Jeff Chang to the podcast. Dr. Chang serves as assistant professor of church history and historical theology, and as the curator of the Spurgeon Library here at Midwestern Seminary. For several years now, he's been working on the Lost Sermons of C.H. Spurgeon, and his most recent book, Spurgeon the Pastor, with B&H Publishing, will be released here in the days ahead. Jeff, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Thanks for having me. Yeah, look, I'm delighted to be in the studio with you today. I'm we're in the Spurgeon Library mm-hmm. uh, in the recording studio within it. Right next to my office. Right next to your office. I'm talking with the curator of the Spurgeon Library. We're talking about his new book, your new book out called Spurgeon the Pastor, uh, Recovering a Biblical and Theological Vision for Ministry. And uh, out with B&H Publishers, as I told you just a few minutes ago, man, I've really enjoyed reading mm. this book. And mm, uh, so well done. And I love how you wed the historical side of Spurgeon's life with the theological side of his commitments and convictions with the practical side of local church ministry mm-hmm. now in the 21st mm-hmm. century. And so uh, congratulations and well done. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, so look, uh, we're going to be talking today uh, along these lines about Spurgeon the pastor. And, uh, you know, anytime you talk about Spurgeon, uh, just virtually every minister's ears perk up. <laughs> And they should. And look, there's a mystique about Spurgeon, uh, given the breadth of his ministry, the consequence of his times, the way the Lord used him in so many different ways, and uh, the enduring nature of his ministry. Mm-hmm. I mean, he hasn't been dead that long. That's true. But but still, over a century now, mm-hmm. uh, 1892, as mm-hmm. I recall. Yep. And, uh, and, and so here we are, you know, 130 years since his passing, and he is still relevant. He's still talked about. He's still read. Books are coming out about him and in some ways by him as far as edited works of mm-hmm. his works uh, all the time. And yeah. so here we are again talking about Spurgeon and it's good and fitting and right to be doing it. Yeah. And we're still learning a lot of new things about him, you know, things that haven't been highlighted before. I hope to bring that out in my book. Yeah. And look, you do that. And I only get to this book and, 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 and not just the book, but topics covered within it here momentarily. But before we do, give us a word of update on the Lost Sermons of Spurgeon Project. Uh, yes. Now, I, I know the update, but I want our <laughs> listeners to know it. Yeah, so this has been a 10-year project finally coming to a conclusion this coming fall. Uh, Lord willing, Volume 7 will be published uh, here soon. And this will be kind of a mega volume containing the final three preaching notebooks from Spurgeon's earliest uh, pastorate there in Water Beach. These are wonderful sermons. Uh, this final volume is going to be amazing. Uh, I commend it to all of our listeners. Yeah, and I do as well. It is such a, a great project that you've been uh, responsible steward here for, for many years now. The way the Lord has used it, uh, it's just incredible content. And then not just the sermon outlines themselves and Spurgeon's notes, but your notes mm-hmm. and uh, the the work done alongside of it. And then to top it all off, just the beautiful presentation piece right. with uh, B&H. It's yeah. just something that really, um, I think, will be enduring. It's mm-hmm. going to be on a lot of ministers' bookshelves mm-hmm. for generations. Yeah, I pray so. So, hey, before we get into Spurgeon the Pastor, give us a sense of update uh, on yourself and your family and ministry here, and then perhaps even what you're seeing futuristically on the writing front related to Spurgeon, projects you have on your mind and heart, even if they're not under contract yet. (laughs) Well, we've been here two years in Kansas City. Uh, We still have many friends back in Portland, but the Lord has been so kind to transition us here to to Kansas City. Uh, We've made new friends. Our our kids enjoy their schools. Uh, We love the seminary community. So our family is doing well, and and we, we praise God for providing for all that we need here in Kansas City. In terms of projects. I am working on a book of poems by C.H. Spurgeon. Uh, We are going to include actually a volume of unpublished poems that we have in our collection here in the library. Uh, So that's going to be a delightful volume. 
Uh, on top of that, I hope to continue to work on Spurgeon's ecclesiology. I have a, a more academic work in the works with Christian focus. Um, and there's more on the horizon also that I could probably spend too long talking about. And your dissertation. That, that's the ecclesiology. That's, the, that's ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. right. And we look forward to seeing that. But uh, again, kudos to all that you've done. Uh, give us a sense as to this book, Spurgeon the Pastor. Um, from where did it come from? What, what, what prompted you to devote your time and energy on this project, especially when it's in the context of this multi-volume law sermons work that mm-hmm. you've been doing? Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, my, my dissertation, uh, I had a mentor reach out to me as I was beginning my PhD studies, and he encouraged me to look into Spurgeon's ecclesiology. And I knew the stories of Spurgeon's you know, remarkable fruitfulness, uh, his ministry, but I learned that actually very few people had examined his view of the church. And I was particularly interested in his pastoral ecclesiology as a pastor myself. You know, so questions like, how did he care for a church of 5,000 members, right? How did he fence the Lord's table? What was the membership process like? Did he practice church discipline? Uh, so those were the kinds of questions that I was researching in my dissertation. Uh, and having done that, I was just, just amazed to, to find out that, you know, even though he was so unique in his context and his giftings, when it came to his pastoring of a church, he basically held to kind of historic Baptist ecclesiology. Uh, and he did that amid a remarkable revival. Uh, and yet he refused to sort of compromise his pastoral approach to kind of the, the pragmatic methods of his day. So, you know, there's so much for us to learn from Spurgeon as a pastor. And me writing this book then as a more popular version of my dissertation is, is my attempt to get that story out. Yeah, and, and that you do. And, uh, man, I just, again, I want to commend it. And even as we're talking here, let me just kind of reference a few of the chapter titles so folks can get a sense of what's in the book itself. Uh, you talk about preaching. You talk mm-hmm. about the local church gathering. You talk about uh, the ordinances of baptism, Lord's Supper. You talk about regenerate church membership, uh, watching over the church, meaningful church membership. Uh, you talk about church leadership, elders and deacons, uh, congregationalism, uh, ministry within the church, uh, pastoral training and church planting. And then uh, you conclude with a look at faithfulness uh, as a pastor and within the church. And again, what strikes me about all these are, again, these are perennial topics, mm-hmm. perennial needs, perennial concerns. Right. And I, I guess, Jeff, you know, when you're thinking about Spurgeon, the pastor, um, it's easy to conclude, okay, here's a man who started, you know, 66 ministries, had a lot going on, yeah. writing, preaching itinerarily all the time. Um, but within all that, there is not just convictions about the local church, but clearly a heart for his church. Mm-hmm. Give us a sense as to just his love of pastoral ministry and his love for the people of God. One anecdote is that uh, he chose to be buried there in Norwood because that's where a lot of his church members and deacons and elders were buried. And so even there, in that one little decision, right, where I want to be buried, I want to be buried close to my people. Uh, he, he loved this church. He easily spent, you know, the majority of his week dealing with pastoral issues, meeting prospective members, meeting with his elders, thinking about how to care for his people spiritually. Uh, when, when we think about all that Spurgeon did, I mean, the, the sheer volume of published works, institutions, you know, the, the leadership of the pastor's college, all that sort of like man hours of labor can be applied to his pastoral ministry also leading church meetings, shepherding his people, uh, leading his elders and deacons. Uh, it, it's quite a remarkable ministry. And as far as that love for the local church, 
do you have a sense in which that that's biblically and theologically informed mm. because of you know, him seeing Christ's love for the church, Christ's death for the church? How much of that is, in your estimation, kind of again biblically and theologically informed? How much of that is just a um, kind of a personal spiritual warmth that exuded through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- this was not a sentimental kind of love for the church, but no, he he understood that the church was the bride of Christ. The more you love Christ, the more you'll love His people, right? And so. Each, each Sunday as they gather around the Lord's table, he knew that, that this body of believers, this, this was God's people, heaven come down on earth, right? And, and this is the nearest that he could be to the gates of heaven as he communed with Christ and his people in the local church. What would you say, again, back to the book and the topics you, you, you cover, aspects of it will be relatively familiar to people who mm-hmm. know Spurgeon, will be unsurprising. Aspects perhaps will be, will be surprising in mm-hmm. some way. So mm-hmm. I guess— when you think about the project as a whole, uh, any particular aspect or two or three that comes to mind that you think folks may not have realized that about Spurgeon? Yeah, we, we know about the many people who were converted under Spurgeon's ministry. Uh, what struck me as I did my research was that Spurgeon encouraged every converted person uh, to join a local church. And obviously under his ministry, many of them joined the Metropolitan Tabernacle. But with so many people coming forward for membership, Spurgeon wanted to be careful to guard against a kind of nominal Christianity. So he implemented this sort of rigorous six-step membership process, which, you know, people had to go through, which involved multiple elder-pastor interviews, which involved a congregational visit and a vote. And yet, in spite of kind of that rigor, uh, over 14,000 people joined his church throughout the course of his ministry. You think about that, 14,000 people. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. No, that, that's amazing. <laughs> and give us a sense that that six-step process, like how long will that be start to finish? I mean, what, what do we know about it? Yeah, uh, typically it would take a few months. Um, the first step was meeting with an elder who would take down the person's testimony and kind of test their understanding of the gospel. The notes would go to Spurgeon. He would see those notes, and then he would meet with that individual. So he's meeting with every person who joined uh, the church. Yeah. Either, All 14,000. Well, either him or his co-pastor, James. Okay. Uh, yeah, so he meets with them, examines them also. Then that person's testimony is presented at a members meeting, uh, and the members actually appoint a deacon or an elder to go visit that member in their home and to visit them in their workplace or community and just to ask questions. How is this person's life? Do you know him as a Christian? Did you know he was joining the Metropolitan Tabernacle? Uh, and just to make sure that there's no funny business going on with this person's profession of faith. And then finally, they would come back to the church, present their findings. The church would vote to approve. And then upon taking the Lord's Supper or being baptized, they would be members of the church. You know, Spurgeon said on one occasion, he did 40 membership interviews in one day. Mm. He said it almost killed him (laughs) to do that many. It kills me hearing about it. So, so, you know, when we think about Spurgeon, most people who even have, you know, the most nominal sense of who he was, they think of Spurgeon the preacher. Mm. Give us a sense as to the role of preaching. Uh, in the life of the Metropolitan Tabernacle? Yeah, that's where it all started in terms of his pastoral ministry. Uh, he, his fundamental conviction was that if God's going to build his church, he does it through his word. Uh, he calls preaching the thermopylae of Christendom. Right? You, you think of that story of King Leonidas holding off the Persians with his 300 soldiers. Uh, that's how the pastor should envision himself as he preaches from the pulpit. Uh, the, the church rises or falls based on the preaching of God's word. So, yeah, Spurgeon's conviction was that whatever else the pastor is doing, he, he must make sure that the preaching of the, of the Word does not fail. Uh, and it's remarkable. For 38 years, 
I mean, he held a church of 5,000 people together, right? They were relatively happy. They were growing. They were active, united under, under Spurgeon's leadership. And I think that he attributed that to the power of God's word. Right. right. And obviously he was a genius, uniquely used by God, uniquely gifted. Mm-hmm. And uh, his sermon preparation process was, uh, was economized. <laughs> what can you say about it? Not that we commend all aspects of it, but, but it's how Spurgeon actually produced a sermon. Yeah. With so much with Spurgeon, you know, we should not try to imitate him because he is so uniquely gifted. But his sermon preparation, you know, he would start typically probably around 6 p.m. on a Saturday evening. Uh, he would spend the first portion of his sermon prep praying and, and reading through Scripture and waiting for the Spirit to lead him to a text that he should preach from. Once he arrived on that text, he would begin his own personal kind of meditation and study of the text. And only after having then studied the text would he move on to commentaries and, and other devotional works. And then finally, he'd produce kind of a, you've seen this, like kind of a half-page outline of his sermon. Um, it, it didn't seem like much, but there was a lot of study packed into that half page. Uh, and then he would bring that with him into the pulpit. And so then take us to the Lord's Day. Mm-hmm. Again, give us a sense as to the contours of his Lord's Day. Yeah, he would arrive early in the morning. Uh, having prepared that sermon, he'd also be thinking about the songs that he wanted the church to sing, uh, the scripture readings to be read. Uh, he would arrive early to work with the song leader on those hymns and tunes. Then the service would probably begin around 1030, I think. Uh, it, it would be a very simple service. Uh, there would be an opening prayer. Uh, you know, right off the bat, Spurgeon wanted these people to, to be aware that they were dealing with God. This wasn't about hearing from Spurgeon. This is about communion with God. And so he would open with prayer. They would sing a few hymns. There would be a scripture reading. There'd be a pastoral prayer. And then Spurgeon would preach for about 45 minutes. Uh, and, and that would be kind of that Sunday morning service. And then the rest of the Lord's Day. Yeah. Uh, the, the afternoons would be taken up with all kinds of ministries, uh, Sunday school activities, outreach. Uh, they would come back in the evening for an evening service. This would be a more evangelistically themed service. Uh, Spurgeon would preach more extemporaneously for this service, though it would be structured very similar to the morning service. If they still had time, I think at times they would meet for a, a, a church meeting in the evenings to take care of congregational matters. But it would be a long Lord's Day. Uh, it would be a full, what the Puritans would call a market day of the soul. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So thinking about then not just Spurgeon's preaching, but, uh, but, but the service as a whole, and uh, you've alluded to a little bit to the uh, the singing component, mm. but uh, what was congregational singing like at the tab? Oh yes, I mean the, the the church there under Spurgeon's leadership, they were known throughout London for their singing. Uh, there was a, I have a record of a woman who visited from America, and she talks about visiting Westminster Abbey and being discouraged that she couldn't sing there because the choirs were doing all the singing. But when she came to the tabernacle, she she really enjoyed it because she could sing along with the people. In terms of content, Spurgeon printed his own hymn book, uh, which provided for his people kind of a repertoire of, of rich theological hymns. Uh, and in terms of like the music, the tunes that Spurgeon picked would always be geared towards congregational singing. Uh, that's the reason why he, he didn't have any instruments. Uh, he refused to use an organ. Uh, I don't think he was principally opposed to instruments, but he just preferred the human voice that much more. Um, so they sang a cappella, and... Uh, you know, one reporter describes the singing of the tabernacle like a giant arousing from, from its sleep, you know, and, and this, this wave of 6,000 voices, uh, it, just, it was unmatched. 
there in London. That's sweet to hear. So then, let's think about the ordinances, mm. and uh, we need to we need to we need to stop there and dig in for a minute. So, okay. so give us a sense of Spurgeon's understanding of the ordinances. Spurgeon was a Baptist. Uh, he believed that baptism is to be administered to those who have a credible profession of faith, uh, and that it served then as kind of the initiating sign of entry right into the body of Christ. Uh, the Lord's Supper was then that that sort of ongoing sign of membership in the body of Christ. It was this sign of, of their union with Christ, their, their communion with Him. Uh, and, and what these two ordinances do is that they mark out the people of God from the world, right? And, and that's basically what church membership is. It's, it's a way of making distinct the church from the world. Um, as Spurgeon, you know, took people into church membership through baptism, uh, as they kind of showed their membership in the church through the Lord's Supper, this is why he cared so much about regenerate church membership. You know, he wanted to make sure that these people who were participating in the church, in these ordinances, really had a credible profession of faith, right? And that's why that membership process existed. And that's why having brought them into the church, then Spurgeon and his elders were so concerned then to care for these people, to make sure that they were living uh, according to that profession. And so did Spurgeon himself typically baptize, often baptize, rarely baptize? He typically baptized uh, until James, his brother, joined as a co-pastor. Then he, they kind of shared that responsibility. But he, yeah, he baptized something like 80% of, of that 14,000 people that he brought into membership. About 80% of them were baptized. And when in the service would that take place? Uh, they would baptize either in the evening service or sometimes in the Monday service okay. where they would have a prayer meeting. And as it relates to the Lord's Supper, what mm -hmm. frequency of observance do they practice? Yeah, when, when Spurgeon first started, uh, they were observing the Lord's Supper once a month, but they were noticing that a lot of people were having trouble catching that Lord's Supper Sunday, and so they decided to start offering it twice a month. Uh, but eventually, he moved towards having the Lord's Supper every Sunday, uh, but there was still kind of one Sunday a month that was like the, the great communion service, where most people try to attend that one particular service. And in Spurgeon's day, what was the seating capacity of the tabernacle? The tabernacle, you could squeeze in about 6,000 people. Okay. Um, and, and when they served the Lord's Supper, uh, they would have the people who were communion occupy the, the floor and the first gallery, while anybody who was just observing could take the second gallery. So any given Sunday then, you, you have obviously not all 5,000 members there, but you have the bulk of those there, and then you have 1,000 or so Guests, spectators, yep. tourists, yep, that's whomever right. just there. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, the tabernacle was the place to go, especially if you're an American tourist, right? People would ask any American tourist, did you see the queen and did you hear Spurgeon preach? Right, right. And right. so they had a lot of visitors each Sunday. So give us a sense of uh, church leadership. And our time here is, is flying by, Dr. Chang, but uh, I do want to enable you to speak to this for a moment or two at least. Give us a sense about church leadership, the role of the congregation and congregationalism mm -hmm. played in that. And then how Spurgeon functioned, obviously, when you have a figure like him, even if there's a plurality of elders, there's a sense in which he stands out. Um, give us a sense as to the fill of the tabernacle. So Spurgeon held to kind of that New Testament teaching of two offices in the church. You've got elders who give themselves to the spiritual care of the church, uh, and you've got deacons, you know, giving themselves to the practical care of the church. When he first arrived, he, it was more of a solo pastor, deacon board sort of setup, uh, but he soon found himself and his deacons just overwhelmed with the, the pastoral needs in the church. And so very soon, within five years, he moves towards 
implementing a plurality of elders. Uh, and really that made just all the difference in their ability to care for such a large congregation. He said at one point that um, his care of the Metropolitan Tab Tabernacle would have been a sham without the office of kind of eldership in the church. Uh, but even though he had elders and deacons, he believed, according to the New Testament, that the final authority in the local church is the congregation. And so he was a congregationalist. Uh, he, even the elders or even Spurgeon could not unilaterally make decisions about the membership of the church or, 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 or discipline cases or building projects or whatever. Um, a, a lot of people have tried to sort of paint Spurgeon as this sort of autocratic figure. But when I look at his commitment to congregationalism, just the sheer number of congregational meetings that he led and chaired, uh, he was firmly convinced of congregationalism. And, and he believed that, that the congregation should exercise its authority in the church. You know, and, and the congregation, I think, was instructed and discipled in that. They, they came to understand that the ministry of the tabernacle was not the ministry of Spurgeon. It was the ministry of the church. Uh, and that gave them sort of a sense of ownership that, that mobilized them to, for ministry in the world. So last question, bit of a curveball here. What would you say was the biggest change Spurgeon undertook at the tabernacle? Meaning you mentioned they didn't have elders. He moved them towards elders. Any other particularly paradigm shifting, uh, you know, rebooting them in some way, obviously constructing, you know, the tabernacle itself was undertaking. Any particular decision that you think is helps to indicate or to um, represent his leadership style? Yeah. I think perhaps the biggest change is just simply the, the impact of his, his time there. I mean, he, when he arrived, there was 30 people in the audience, mostly gray heads. Uh, they, they were in serious decline. They had just written a letter to the Baptist Union the, the, you know, a few months before asking for help because they were in such trouble. And then shows up this 19-year-old. <laughs> and uh, under his ministry, I mean, the tabernacle becomes this amazing engine for gospel ministry throughout the world. So, yeah, in terms of change, I think he gave his people uh, a renewal. You know, uh, under the, his ministry, by God's grace, there was a surprising revival. And the Lord did a wonderful work through that church that continues to, that we continue to talk about even today. Well, Dr. Chang, I want to congratulate you again on your new book, uh, Spurgeon the Pastor, out with B&H Publishers and uh, available most anywhere books are sold. And also to foreshadow a bit deeper into the fall, the uh, seventh volume of the Lost Sermons of Spurgeon series coming out, yeah. and congratulate you in advance for that as well. And um, I, to our listeners, I want to say you can't get enough of Spurgeon, so enjoy these resources, uh, read them, and learn from the Prince of Preachers himself. Yeah. yeah, amen. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.